Welcome to this week's ep- uh, very belated episode of the Casual Tuesdays Book Club on a Saturday. Yeah, I had a, another job. I was dog-sitting this week on top of my regular job, so I was super busy and just really exhausted. Like, my eyelid started twitching, which is pretty intense. Anyway, uh, and that is no condition in which to make an episode about probably the most intense short story I've worked on for this podcast, and I'm pretty sure I've done, it's like 20, over 20 episodes at this point. I think this is episode 13 of season 2. Um, anyway, the story is Going to Meet the Man by James Baldwin. The story is online, but it took me a while to find, and I haven't been able to recreate my path to this document, so I'm just going to give you the whole URL, and I'll do it twice, just so you know. Okay, http colon slash slash www.blacklivesmattersyllabus.com slash wp dash content slash uploads slash 2012 slash 09 slash going underscore to underscore meet underscore the underscore man dot pdf. Okay, one more time. I'm going to leave out the intro bit. Black Lives Matter syllabus dot com slash wp dash content slash uploads slash 2012 slash 09 slash going underscore two underscore meet underscore the underscore man dot pdf okay this story has so much to talk about i'm gonna pull out some of the things that stuck out most to me but again if as you know as always really if you have other ideas please text me and uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. The first thing I want to talk about is the prose. Baldwin's prose here is very simple. Of course, it's a very complex, complicated story, but if you look at the structure of individual sentences and how the details of the story are arranged, you'll notice that they're laid out in very direct terms. An easy example of this is the detail of the dogs barking on page one. Uh, the dogs are introduced bluntly at the beginning of the sentence, and in a series of sentences that each lay out a sensory detail of the setting, um, kind of in, you know, one at a time, pretty standard terms. And in the dog sentence, Baldwin puts his spin, like the idea that the dogs are making an appointment, at the end, so that the real, you know, reality events are totally clear. I think the simplicity of the prose allows the content, you know, the violence, the sexuality, the brutality, to really stand on its own with nothing in the way. And this clear, stark portrayal, I think, gives the brutality even more force. It's kind of like this apparent lack of emotion in the delivery makes the punch that much harder. Uh, And this technique as a whole kind of reminds me of what Ernest Hemingway would do often. But Baldwin mixes things up much more than Hemingway. And although the sentence structure is still simplistic, uh, at times, the narration is really fluid. At different points, there's an objective narrator describing the setting and, you know, Jesse's actions in the present. Uh, Jesse is narrating, and then Jesse as a child, like young Jesse, is narrating. And Baldwin moves between these different perspectives without obvious cues like paragraph breaks or punctuation. But the story still reads really seamlessly. I think this is one of the coolest aspects of the story in terms of pure writing technique. As a reader, you have to see the shift in perspective as it moves away from objectivity. So an uh, an example would be when Jesse hears the car. Uh, So, quote, he heard it hit gravel, then heard it no more. Some some liver-lipped students probably heading back to that college, but coming from where? Uh, His watch said it was two in the morning, end quote. Wow, I didn't do a very good job reading that. Anyway, um, but... 
Okay, so the first and the last sentence are part of the objective narration, but that middle sentence is Jesse's thought, and you're kind of cued in on that based on, one, the uncertainty, so we don't know exactly, you know, the cut and dry of what's happening, but also, you know, that detail, liver-lipped, you can hear Jesse's opinion of the students coming through, um, but we don't get any punctuation or any cues or, you know, italicized or any cues at all that that's Jesse, you just have to pay attention to it in the prose itself. Um... And yeah, just as a writing technique, this is, you know, similar to, I was talking about this last week, about interjections that are unpunctuated, and this story has some of those as well. Okay, also, the switch between the present or and the immediate past, um, or <laughs> the present or the immediate past is one group, and then Jesse's childhood in the second group, that transition is cued in by a sensory detail, and I think this is really cool. It's talking about the, the hearing the song at night. And this is a really great way to kind of spark that transition. And Baldwin does this with much more subtlety, um, but the same technique is used all over Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and to defend my boy Kurt Vonnegut, I'd argue that the lack of subtlety is part of the point in Slaughterhouse-Five, but that's not the point of this episode. Anyway, that transition in time and in narration queued up through that, transi- uh, through that sensory detail kind of helps smooth out that process instead of saying, you know, he suddenly remembered this. Part of what makes this multiple perspective narration work so well, you know, even as it jumps between the lines that Baldwin, you know, set up, is that Baldwin has made very compelling and very well-written narrators in each, you know, track. I'm going to talk about young Jesse's narration in more detail later, but I thought this point was just worth mentioning here because when I was interning for the book, uh, book Scout and reading manuscripts, one of the things that broke a lot of books for me was inconsistency in narrative voice. And this is especially true of kid narrators who often, you know, the writers will endow these kids with too much knowledge or too large a vocabulary even, which makes the characters seem really contrived. And also kind of creepy. Like kids shouldn't know too many big words. It's weird. They should just do kid shit. Anyway. The last thing I wanted to talk about, <laughs> and I guess is in relation to prose, I started that prose, it's gone quite tangential. Um, it's kind of expanded to narration as a whole, but whatever. Okay, last thing. Uh, it's just something I thought was really interesting was how Baldwin laid out time throughout the story, um, especially focusing on the story uh, from Jesse's childhood. Because, you know, first, in terms of the reading order, It steps back to the evening after the lynching, and then it steps back. Then it, like, starts the day over again. So Baldwin does this for a couple reasons. So, you know, one, so that the sensory cue lines up, but also so that the big punch comes at the end of the story. Uh, The big punch being this, the lynching and this kind of open explanation or first encounter with Jesse's violent, racist sexuality. But think about it this way. Baldwin could have jumped to the evening before the lynching to line up this nighttime thing, and then progress chronologically through the memory. Instead, he jumps through time differently, which does two things. First, it allows him to include the song. And this is really interesting because the reader doesn't fully understand the context of the song until after the story. This story, by the way, is loaded with things like that, which make a second reading incredibly, incredibly powerful. The second thing that this, you know, jumping through time does is it makes Jesse's recollection seem haphazard and this memory, like we have to coax it out of him. And so maybe he, Jesse, doesn't fully understand um, what 
the significance is because if he understood, he would have gone directly to the source instead of kind of teasing it apart in this very odd way. Next up, I want to talk about some of the emotional content of the story. Obviously, the story is very powerful and really stirs up a lot of emotion in the reader, but for this bit, I just want to focus on what Baldwin includes in the text. Specifically, I want to talk about affect. Affect, in literary terms, is a subconscious emotion, something that the character is feeling, but you know, deep down, but they can't quite articulate or even recognize themselves. You could say it's even repressed. Um, that was a pun on sexual repression is what I was going for there, not like oppression. Um, anyway, uh, Baldwin is pretty clearly working with affect throughout the story. And I have some quotes here that pretty much just state it exactly like that. Quote, he wanted to let whatever was in him out, end quote. So he doesn't know what's in him. And, quote, he began to tremble with what he believed was rage, sweat, both cold and hot, raced down his body, end quote. Another time, I kind of, like, can't read very well today for some reason. Um, but, yeah, so what he believed to be was rage, so he's not totally sure. Um, and also, having the cold and hot is this mixture, this unknowing, you know, it's there's not certainty in it. And then this is a, a really beautiful quote. Um, okay, quote, each man in the thrilling silence which sped outward from their exchanges, their laughter and their anecdotes seemed wrestling in various degrees of darkness with a secret which he could not articulate to himself and which, however directly it related to the war, re related yet more surely to his privacy and his past, end quote. And that, in the, the context of that one, is talking about the police officers who are in this war, um, so to speak. I put air quotes around war um, because it's horrible. Um, but uh, yeah, so then talking about this, a secret, you know, not being able to articulate to yourself and then having this, you know, deeper seated um, source that's in there. Okay. In addition to this, I just kind of read those because I thought they're good, but they also just to illustrate that Baldwin is pretty much, he's talking about affect here. Um, but additionally, I noticed that Baldwin does a really great job blending emotions in kind of confusing and unsettling ways to give this super nuanced, but, but again, unsettling feel. So at one point, Jesse feels, quote, an overwhelming fear, which yet contained a curious and dreadful pleasure. So the mixture of all those emotions, fear, curiosity, and pleasure, create, it's a very strange but very specific combination. And he does this a couple of times. I can't find in my notes uh, where exactly, um, but he does it in groups of three. Uh, I know there's one uh, right at the beginning. Okay, uh, here we go. So, quote, he lay there silent, angry, and helpless. End quote. Um, and the mixture of those three, so you get, it's kind of like building a Venn diagram. So you get this very specific point um, in the middle, and it's just incredibly specific. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just really wonderful writing. And the excitement, like a toothache, that's another one. It was just brilliant stuff. Um, and yeah, I was, it was awesome. Um, okay. The last affect I want to talk about was the big one, and that's this really disturbing mixture of racial violence and sexual arousal. Uh, before I dive in, I want to say that this is not my strong suit in terms of literary experience or personal experience for that matter. So uh, if you have some ideas for a more cohesive thought about this, um, or uh, if I say something um, that is offensive to someone, I, I really don't uh, mean to be. I'm just trying to explore this. Um, and just, yeah, so please reach out and let me know um, what, you know, how I could be better about it or... Um, 
if you have ideas that are, are again, more cohesive, because I, I have thoughts, but not a, a full cohesive thesis on this part of it. Um, also, Katie, uh, I know you wrote about sexuality in literature, so I'd love to hear your thoughts specifically. Um, okay, uh, let's get into the text. The story pretty much begins with Jesse alluding to forced sexual acts with African-American women, and it builds quickly uh, builds with racial violent and like racial and violent degrees. So Jesse's sexual arousal at racial violence is very direct. And, you know, when he's beating the man in prison, Baldwin says of Jesse, quote, he felt himself violently stiffen, end quote. Um, and also, you know, looking at the imagery from the jailhouse scene, it totally blurs the lines between violence and sex. Uh, he talks about breasts leaping after being shocked with a cattle prod, you know, and this is, comes right after he's holding his wife's breasts, and he's talking about moans, which appear throughout the story, really, um, but they could be a sign of pleasure or of pain. And so this kind of, yeah, this, this kaleidoscopic view of violence and sex kind of all mixed together, um, and it's really, really intense. Um, and the final point is uh, at the lynching, you know, young Jesse kind of fixates on the size of the man's penis as he has this semi-sexual reaction of his own. And I say semi-sexual just because he's young. He's a young kid. So it's not so much a conscious, active, sexual thing. Um, okay. So this violent racism, sexuality, is a huge part of the story. And if it's not the most important part of the story, potentially. And I say that because if you look at the structure, the story begins with Jesse's sexual impotence. And then, you know, as I talked about early, uh, earlier, the timeline is built so that the lynching and the fixation on the penis comes at the end to be this resolution of sorts, because that's what gets Je Jesse over his impotence. Um, and so this, yeah, this whole th this whole trajectory, you could say the, the conflict and resolution is that he can't get it up and then he can. Um, and it's, uh, it's fascinating and uh, super messed up. Um, and if, uh, you know, again, unfortunately, I'm out of my depth with this. So I'd appreciate it if, you, if you've got an idea or just some interesting thoughts to share. I'd love to hear it. Okay, next up, a lot of stories are only as good as their villain. And Baldwin makes an incredible villain. He's the focal point of the whole story, Jesse. Um, and he takes us inside Jesse's head. And so I just wanted to talk about the different ways <clears throat> that we get to know Jesse. Uh, the first thing I noticed about Jesse was that he has contradictory visions of himself. Jesse's voice in the narration comes through and, you know, at one point, and, um, and he, we see that he sees himself as a good God-fearing man who has tried to do his duty his whole life. Those are his words. But this comes right after him admitting that he cheats on his wife, what seems like regularly. Um, he brushes, and he kind of, but he brushes that aside. And there's, here's a short excerpt, quote, sometimes, sure, like any other man, end quote. And that short little bit is, is part of the prose. Um, but you've got three qualifiers, uh, three ways of him justifying himself uh, for his infidelity. Um... And yeah, and we so this is from the narration. We know that this is Jesse's opinion of himself. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, okay, so but then you know from the objective, the objective narrator from you know what we could I guess say is just Baldwin. We but we get this straight on. Quote: 
He never thought, <laughs> he had never thought, oh man, I fucking can't do quotes today. Okay, starting over. Quote, he had never thought much about what it meant to be a good person, end quote. And that's pretty much straight up, there it is. Um, but then he does have this moment of self-reflection this on this evening, and Jesse uh, reiterates that, quote, it wasn't that he didn't know that what he was doing was right, end quote. Um, and this is kind of during a period where he's talking about the police action against African Americans. Um, but he says something to that effect several times. And to me, it came off as if he was insisting on this point to convince himself of it. Uh, you know, when you repeat something enough times so you try to make it true, that's what it's it read like that to me. And as if he was kind of, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously questioning what he was doing. Finally, last thing I wanted to bring up uh, in this little section um, is that um, there's, there's this little detail, uh, and it's not a huge thing, but it's really clever by Baldwin, I think. Um, so Jesse talks about what is effectively genocide and going through and like burning houses with African Americans where African Americans live. Um, but he says they won't, the cops won't, because of the fear that African Americans had guns from the war. First, he kind of blows over the fact that these people served their country. Um, but second, and this is the part that really caught my eye, he goes on from that to describe the conflict between the police and the African-American community as a war. So this move not only shows that is like bitter racism, but it also kind of puts him on equal terms with these veterans. Okay, the next thing uh, about Jesse that I want to talk about was actually his wife. Um, and first of all, her name is Grace. And I don't think that Baldwin just drew that name out of a hat. Uh, grace means, of course, ele like elegance, but also in Christian terms, uh, grace is like the favor of God and essentially salvation. And the notion that his wife is some, you know, salvation in some sense is more directly stated because he calls her a sanctuary, though he calls her a frail sanctuary at that. Nevertheless, Jesse wants to curl up against her and kind of become a child again, which could be some form of salvation. I'm kind of spitballing here, but as a woman, you know, she can give life and he wants to return to childhood. So he wants her to, you know, renew his life essentially. But, you know, I'm not sure. Um, and there's one brief scene I want to draw attention to. So Jesse is talking to Grace late at night and she might be asleep. We don't know that she's, she might be. Um, so, and this is Jesse talking. So, uh, quote, they had this line, you know, to register. He laughed, but she did not. And they wouldn't stay... Uh, you know, blah, 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 end quote. Um, so because what I wanted to focus on was that Baldwin interrupts Jesse's story so that Jesse can laugh and his wife can specifically not laugh. And I think this difference is crucial because she might be asleep, but she might be awake. And so we should just take it at face value because he interrupted this story to include this detail. Um, and, you know, it's not like his wife is standing up against her husband's racism in a, you know, I won't give her credit for that, but this is like the slightest rebuke. Um, and I thought that was interesting. Um, but you know, here's, here's my issue though. Grace seems to be set up to be salvation, but I don't see in what way. I don't see how it happens. And, you know, in the end, she's pretty much just like a sexual object to him. And I think that could be Baldwin saying that there is no salvation for Jesse. Um, but, you know, it's Baldwin, not Jesse, that gave her that name and kind of insisted on her that being. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not sure about this one. I just thought it was kind of interesting, the role that his wife plays as a potential for salvation. Okay, moving on. I said earlier that I would get to Young Jesse, and here it is. So Young Jesse is a narrator. Uh, he's noticeably different, and one of the first things I noticed, um, now, there's an obvious thing that he says that he has an African-American friend, um, so that's pretty straight up, but one of the subtleties of it is that Jesse uses the word black instead of the N-word. Young Jesse uses the word black, um, as opposed to old Jesse, who uses the N-word. Um, and so, yeah, there's this idea of the innocence of youth, uh, it's a pretty standard notion, um, but the word change shows that old Jesse kind of acquires and intensifies this corruption, um, like kind of spiritual and like racial corruption. Similarly, in the lynching scene, young Jesse recognizes that the man being lynched has a widow's peak, just like he does and just like his father does. Um, and just a little bit about that. That whole scene is incredibly disturbing uh, in content and also because it's viewed through the perspective of a child. Uh, but one of the things I found really disconcerting about it was the details that young Jesse focuses on, things like the, the widow's peak. Um, and it just made it all the more disturbing to me because there's this just disconnect uh, emotionally. And yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say about young Jesse uh, is that, you know, and this is pretty obvious, is he gets this exposure to sexual images and and the and scenes that he seemed to be the seed for his future okay so i started this little section uh talking about jesse as a focal character and a villain and i want to bring it full circle and by asking a very simple question which is what motivates jesse as a character you know what does he want well given how the story starts and finish the obvious kind of short-term answer is that it's tied to impotence and he wants sexual gratification and as he tells us he wants sexual gratification that his wife really can't offer um, or that he won't ask of her. But given how his sexuality is so tied up in violence and racism, I get the feeling that this is some outlet for a past trauma, which, you know, we've actually been shown as readers. Now, I'm not trying to excuse Jesse's behavior. I'm just trying to prize apart his character a little bit. Um, I think he's a horrible piece of shit. But, um, okay. Basically, what I'm saying is I think that this is a Freudian thing. So then we have to question, what's the underlying desire, the underlying imbalance that creates this? Well, there are a couple of clues in the text. When Jesse tells, or when Jesse wants to tell Grace about his day, Grace mumbles, um, <clears throat> she mumbles, quote, uh, she was probably telling him to go to sleep. It was all right. He knew he was not alone, end quote. So here, the underlying issue is loneliness, and that that's what uh, Jesse is afraid of. Um, and when he goes on to describe his day, his voice sounds peculiar. This is kind of a different point. His voice sounds peculiar, which seems as though it's kind of like an out-of-body experience and that his day is not connected with him, that the actions are different, which would, I think, kind of further the notion that what he's doing is not, is somehow, it's, it's part of this unresolved notion um, in some way that, and that he's disconnected from it. Um... Yeah, I lost my spot in my notes. I do that once a week, probably. It's ridiculous. Okay, anyway, uh, here we are. Okay, I already mentioned that Jesse's desire to become a child again um, when I was talking about Grace, and so we don't really have enough information to know what that means in a concrete way, but I have two little options that I can see based on the text. 
Either, one, he misses the innocence and the less intense racism of childhood, or two, he just wants to restart and totally erase the trauma. On a similar line to kind of support the first option, he talks about the stress of work and how he felt like he was drowning um, and the work would never end and no one cared, which kind of ties into the loneliness. Um, But yeah, I'm not sure. Another idea that popped up given Freud analysis is he says that his mother like never looked more beautiful than she did at the lynching, um, which is super fucked up. But also it could be kind of this Oedipus complex thing. uh, And it would imply that, you know, that could imply that some of these, these issues are just innate. Uh, They're part of his nature rather than a nurture problem. Look, the, the thing is, I'm not sure what the underlying desire is. But I don't think Jesse does either. I don't think he knows. And that's kind of the nature of this story. And, you know, it's all about, af- uh, you know, all the emotions are affects. And there's no clear resolution. You know, eventually he gets an erection. But that's just building off of the same terrible things. The story isn't about him resolving this internal conflict. But the continuation of it. And the, the continuation of Jesse's horrendous evil life. Um and so I don't think we're supposed to know exactly what. There's just little bits and pieces that could be something, but based on the text, we don't know exactly what. The last thing I'll leave you with is a quote uh, from the lynching scene and some comments on it. Quote, he felt that his father had carried him through a mighty test, had revealed to him a great secret, which would be the key to his life forever. Which is super fucked up. Um, but we don't know what that secret is is there's no definitive moral lesson um from it was just a super intense experience uh there's hatred for black people and there's all this sexual tension but it's really unresolved and he feels like he feels complete without knowing why um and then at the at the end of the lynching uh as a boy he says i reckon i reckon and then he repeats the phrase uh as a man like in bed as if it's some sort of lasting mantra but it doesn't have any substance. If anything, it, it's just, you know, I reckon means like I'm pretty sure, but not certain. And yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's wild. Um, all I can say for sure is that it took James Baldwin 12 pages to make an incredibly nuanced and complex character. And his under- the character's desires and life is just super complex and yeah so text me if you've got ideas i'd love to hear them okay the next thing i wanted to talk about is the torture slash beating scene in the jailhouse i think it's largely stands for itself just in the brutality of it Uh, and i already alluded to the mixture of sexual and violent imagery but i want to mention three other things first there's a subtle instance of jesse justifying himself when he's beating the man Um, He says the man, quote, acted like he didn't hear, end quote. Uh, And this little bit's delivered in prose as part of the narration, but you can definitely hear Jesse's voice and Jesse's motivation behind it um, as he continues to beat this man. Um, Yeah. And second, when Jesse kicks the man, it is described like this, quote, his foot leapt out, end quote. This phrasing makes it seem like Jesse isn't the one kicking the man, but the foot kind of acted on its own. And this serves two purposes. First, for Jesse, it's a way of distancing himself from the action, you know, even though he swears that it's justified. And second, it makes the action seem instinctive, which, given so that so much of the story is about the subconscious things and this violence, 
you know, it could be an innate action. Um, this also reminded me, this little, this foot thing kind of reminded me of the stranger, this foot thing. He's kicking a man in the head after beating him. I can't say this foot thing. Um, sorry about that. Anyway, um, this scene though reminded me, this bit reminded me of the stranger by Camus when, uh, the main character upspoke there. That's annoying. Uh, but anyway, the main character basically murders a guy because the sun was in his eyes and it's that same phrasing where it's he's much more distant from the action itself. The last thing I wanted to say about this scene is probably the most important. Uh, this story was published in 1965, but it clearly is as relevant as ever. And things like this still go on. Things, you know, people getting shot, uh, just the other, you know, unarmed black people getting shot. And so um, that's part of what makes this such a powerful story. The penultimate topic is a brief one, uh, and that is that there are some subtle plot lines that Baldwin introduces quietly and kind of go throughout the story, but under the surface. First, the young man that Jesse beats in the jail says that, that they will sing until every white man goes crazy. And he actually kind of succeeds because that song is, or a song haunts Jesse at two in the morning while he can't sleep. So he kind of, kind of makes him go crazy. Uh, the second one is less detailed, but in that way, much more ominous. Jesse first wakes up in the night because of the car, and he hears the car on gravel and then stop. And then at the very end of the morning, he hears the car on gravel again. Uh, cars make noise on gravel as long as they're moving, but the, no the noise didn't kind of fade away. It didn't drive away. It stopped. So it makes me think that the car was kind of parked there the whole night. And uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. Um... But it's really cool detail, and it adds some edge and some suspense, and it really makes you wonder what is going on outside of the room and outside of Jesse's head. Finally, this story was incredibly powerful and moving, and Baldwin is just such a brilliant writer. Uh, so I wanted to include some of my favorite quotes and some other kind of miscellaneous bits from the story and a little bit about them. So uh, when Jesse is talking about a nightmare, he says, quote, Everything familiar, without undergoing any other change, had been subtly and hideously displaced, end quote. And I think that's just such a brilliant description of a nightmare. Um, and this kind of unease with even in the midst of very familiar things. Okay, next up, uh, there's they, and that refers to some white men. Um, quote, they cursed the government in Washington, which had betrayed them, end quote. And this is, I think, another example of something that has relevance today of people um, having very anti-establishment views. I'm not, again, not trying to say that, that they're correct or anything. I just thought that that idea is out there and that uh, Baldwin totally called it. Okay. Uh, similarly, another thing is that Baldwin calls out northern cities' ghettos, um, northern cities having, you know, keeping blacks in a single neighborhood. And that is totally true. And I think he's talking, talks, Jesse talks about the Northerners coming down, um, but the North had its own problems with racism. And so it's, I think it's very important and that I think Baldwin very intentionally put that bit in there. Okay. The next one um, is another quote uh, from the lynching that was just so powerful that I felt obliged to include it. Quote, 
His father's face was full of sweat. His eyes were peaceful. At that moment, Jesse loved his father more than he had ever loved him. He felt that his father had carried him through a mighty test, had revealed to him a great secret, which would be the key to his life forever. End quote. Yeah, uh, that kind of just speaks for itself in a lot of ways, but the intensity of that scene with all the emotions and the way that it's so disturbing that the father being at peace and the young kid there and it's it draws out such an intense response uh from the reader that i yeah i wrote it down the first time i read it and i had to include it um and the last quote um is i probably should end it with that quote but the last one i put them down in the order that they appeared um is uh just i thought a really poetic description and it's jesse talking about grace quote the moonlight covered her like glory and i thought that is a really beautiful description um but it's interesting that it covered her like glory uh it's such an interesting phrase um like glory <laughs> it's a very odd simile um but it's beautiful and it really works out and yeah, that's all I got for this segment. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Next week, I'll be looking at Emily Dickinson's poem, I Felt a Funeral in My Brain. It's online, so just look it up. Uh, the song this week was Public Enemies by the Time I Get to Arizona, which was released in 1991, and in response to Arizona voting against making a state holiday for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and it's a protest song that's still very relevant today. Um, and it's also, especially April 4th, is the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. So, uh, thank you again for tuning in, and here's some more public enemy. Hey, I'm looking for the day, hard as it seems, this ain't no damn dream, gotta know what I mean, this team against team, catch the light beam. So I pray, I pray every day, I do embrace out of make looking for culture, I got but not here for Jamaica, pushing and shaking the structure, bringing down a Babylon, hearing the circle to make it hard for the brown, the hard full of what I need it now, more than ever now, who's sitting on my freedom oppressor, people beat her, a piece of the pick, we picked a piece of the land we're serving now, reparation, a piece of the nation, damn we got the nerve, another nigga they say and classify, we want too much, my people plus the nine is mine, don't think I even double dust, here's Brother, my attitude is here to hang up high I'm blowing up the 90s, started ticking in 86 When the sign get a mind, better stop fearing while we singing now There will be the day we know who's down and who will go, 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 go By the time I get to Arizona By the time I get to Arizona